This is Family Office Intel at Dentons, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas from advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of the Family Office here at the firm. Our guest today is Tom Burroughs. Tom is Group Editor of Family Wealth Report along with Wealth Briefing and Wealth Briefing Asia. He's been with the news organization since March 2008. Prior to this, Tom was the wealth management editor for The Business, a UK-based publication. And before that, he was a correspondent in many different places for Reuters. Tom has graduated uh, with a bachelor's degree in history from Brighton Polytechnic. He divides his time between London and Malta, and in whatever spare time he can muster, he's a qualified yacht sailor and enthusiastic student of history. So Tom, let's get started. How'd you go from crime reporting and the crime reporting beat to covering wealthy families and the wealth management industry? So, yeah. So how does how does a man go from being a cops and robbers journalist on a local newspaper to covering the um, activities of the wealth management industry that we now uh, work in? Um, well, it's a simple, well, it's, it's, a, it's a story which has a number of different aspects to it. One is that uh, I, uh, after graduating from my, 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 my higher education, I uh, wanted to be a journalist pretty much in the last um, few years of my time in, in higher education. I knew that that was an area I wanted to go into. Back then, um, if you wanted to go to, to be a reporter and later an editor, the classic route was to do an apprenticeship uh, on a local newspaper group, or if you were lucky, a, a national newspaper group, get your qualifications and learn on the job, um, which is pretty much what I did. I went for a local newspaper group called part of Eastern Counties Newspapers in the east of England. Um, worked there for about four years, four, four and a half years. And during that time, obviously, after doing the initial general news, which everybody has to do, you start to specialize in certain areas. You get things that your editors keep asking you to do and you get good at. And for a while, I covered the uh, the courts, both civil and criminal, and spent quite a lot of time working with and talking to the police services, um, various law enforcement agencies. And so I got immersed quite a lot in the, in the world of criminal and civil law. Um, so that's what I did. In the, in the sort of the early 1990s, um, around about 92, 93, I had become increasingly decided that I wanted to work on a, for a national news organization. I also had covered quite a lot of business and economics as well. And I realized and felt that that, that, that was going to be the area that was going to be um, growing quite a lot. And I had quite a lot of advice from friends of mine, including one who had worked at the Wall Street Journal at the time in London to say that Newswires and the sort of business and economics beats was where it was at. So in 94, in August 94, I finally got to work for an American-based news service called Market News International, as it was called at the time. Um, that you had an office that was growing in London. So I went from having covered the sort of local news in, in the counties of Suffolk, Essex, Cambridge, and Norfolk, to covering the um, policy uh, pronouncements of various central bankers and covering the foreign exchange and debt market stories that were swirling around in the, in the early to mid 90s, as well as keeping track on things like the development of the single currency in, in the European Union, um, and also looking at uh, other sort of economic statistics that would affect the, the likelihood that interest rates and other policy levers would go up or down. So I went from a very sort of uh, traditional journalistic background to a fairly specialist one in fairly short order. So literally within two, months of working in Ipswich, I was working uh, as, as part of my training in downtown Manhattan in the market news office, which was uh, based around the corner from the New York Federal Reserve. So I would take the subway to work and get out at Fulton Street and walk up to my high rise office every day for a period of several weeks. So it was one heck of a, a shift. And so during the 1990s, I continued with that firm working mostly in London, but also with stints working in the Netherlands, Switzerland, and then some short assignments to the US and really enjoyed my time there. I'd learned a great deal. And it was a period that took me um, through uh, what was really a boom time for financial news coverage, both in the UK and of course in the United States. The, the development of mass share ownership, uh, the development of people's 401k plans in the States and other kinds of vehicles and also their parallels in the UK meant that demand for financial news coverage exploded. And we saw that with the rise of channels like CNBC and their parallels in the UK. 
So being a financial news journalist was no longer a specialist area in the middle of the paper where all the really glamorous, exciting stuff was supposedly in politics or current crime or um, society gossip and all of that kind of stuff, or indeed sport. Uh, but financial uh, journalism really ex ex increased its profile a lot as something that people were doing. And funnily enough, um, quite a few of my erstwhile colleagues in local journalism, they saw that I'd made the move and several of them actually did similar things. So, um, and then in 2000, I went to work for Reuters. I was offered a job there. Uh, it's just too good a chance to miss. Um, and it was involved in building out coverage of what was the, the then the obscure world of credit um, and credit derivative markets, which was at the eye of the storm of the, uh, the financial crisis of 2008. So I worked at Reuters for seven years, learned a huge amount there, working mostly in sort of financial and investment beats. And that took me to several parts of the world mostly in continental Europe, uh, as well as as well as the States. And um, I, I worked on that beat for quite a long time. Um, and then I again was offered a job to work for uh, The Business, which was part of the Spectator magazine and ultimately owned by the Telegraph group of newspapers in the UK, and went to work there in 2007 and had a, a tumultuous but very hard working and interesting year there. Unfortunately, the magazine uh, was transferred into a... Um, monthly uh, so several of us got made redundant i then um, after a few weeks of uh, looking and resting and recuperating um, got the job at uh, wealth briefing family of newswise as you described in march 2008 and of course 2008 um, was pretty pretty lively as a year to start in a new job uh, literally within a few months of uh, starting work um, at that job which is based in london uh, we had the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the the whole drama of a number of marquee firms being bailed out, both in Wall Street and, of course, with a number of firms in, in other parts of the world that were seen to be impregnable, having to require in government aid, albeit temporary, like UBS in Switzerland. So what was that like? Because you've covered a lot of the financial uh, services industry pre-2008. And I think yeah. a lot of people are playing catch up at that point as part of it. But you, you were you know, knee deep into it. What, what was that like going through it? Because you, you've seen it on both sides of the Atlantic and, and globally. What was it like to be in the middle of that? Well, in the middle of covering financial news, I think the first thing that really dawned on me was that um, for a lot of people who, uh, you know, when you when you asked them what you did for a living, they sort of told them that you're a journalist, they automatically assumed that you would, you would be doing the sort of the kind of current events stuff that uh, is a daily diet of uh, the, the news channels and the TV channels. So about stuff about celebrities or politicians or uh, and unlike. And so business journalism and financial journalism was seen from the outside as being a bit of a narrow, dull, specialist area. But that and that's begun to that began. And so my experience was obviously that that was anything but. Um, that what was going on in financial markets, what was going on in, in, the, in the world of investment, banking, um, was very often very full of drama, full of importance, that the people who worked in it were, many of them, some of the most intelligent and fascinating people I've ever come up against. And we can say what we like about all of these actors in terms of the various issues that went wrong or the problems went wrong. We're not dealing with people who are, by and large, venal, unpleasant, or stupid, quite the opposite. Uh, we're dealing with some of, the, some of the sharpest, sharpest knives in the drawer. And uh, I have, and, re and, and retain a great deal of respect for this market industry. It's unfashionable sometimes to do that. But I was really struck by what a, a large and involved and complicated field this was in. Um, and one of the other things that really struck me as I went along was how the, 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 the perception of uh, financial services and the wealth management industry, which we'll come on to that in a bit, has changed. Um, being a financial journalist, say, 30 or 40 years ago, was a fairly minority pursuit. Although there were, you know, for example, if you were the guy who used to tip shares, uh, you were a bit like the guy who used to pick the winning horses in um, Kentucky or the UK. You were seen as, a, you, people read you because they thought that your views might make them rich. But beyond that, financial news, apart from the occasional reporting on the big blow up of a company or problems of a bank were not it was not seen as particularly uh, a big deal to be in that's changed considerably 
Um, I've mentioned already the rise of the TV, specialist TV channels like CNBC and of course later Bloomberg Television, Reuters had a TV station. Um, you've seen the increased online growth of, um, and of course the internet was only just starting out really properly in the 90s, but the growth of, of, of online news as, as, and with a lot of financial content on it. Um, so being a financial journalist was no longer seen as something as a bit like, oh well, you obviously must have got passed over for, for promotion by your editor. Instead, it was seen as actually a product, a, a big, a, quite a big career in its own right. A lot of specialist publications took root, both online and in paper. Um, investor, you know, things written for in, investors. Um, I gravitated more towards the B two B part of the that field, and I knew a lot of work, work with a lot of had a lot of friends from people at Bloomberg and Reuters and the Dow Jones Mark side of things. And so the profile of that part of the, of the media definitely rose, and people got well more interested in it. And I think what really shifted for me, one important punctuation point was um, after the um, the dot com bubble imploded, and obviously since uh, and that coincided with the the, the, the horrific events of nine eleven, was that the, the the rise in the in the aware, an awareness about wealth management as a discrete area of journalistic reporting activity. It was still a niche, but it wasn't such a niche as it used to be. Uh, I can remember. Uh, at Reuters in uh, about 2001, a colleague of mine who had been in Geneva, she developed a beat of covering private banks as well as things like hedge funds and private markets. And it was seen as very sort of specialist. And now, of course, it's a big deal. Um, and private banking, wealth management, family offices, all the things that we all talk about and we are talking about, um, that, that, that profile of, a, of an area of news has, has, has gone up as if attached to a rocket over the last 20 years. Um, what, what do you attribute that to it? Uh, other than visibility, you know, we've talked about this before. There was an industry that was very much in private and certainly the people that are in that industry or, or have retained services from that industry value their privacy. What's kind of driven that uh, other than publicity? I mean, we've got rankings and, and different types of specialist organizations that are following, including your own, what else is different? I think there's several forces at work. One is there's an awareness, I think, by um, the media that wealthy people, um, both in public and in private market investing, control a significant part of the chessboard. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, whether it be quantitative easing and all the other forces that have increased wealth, uh, capital concentrations and holdings, as well as big secular shifts like globalization to technology and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, is that high and ultra high net worth individuals around the world play a big part now in many of the investment decisions that make a, make a difference to people's lives. So covering what they do and covering what their advisors do just makes sense. It's a simple news story. It's no longer just, it's not like some kind of, um, I don't know, show busy thing where you, people cover the affairs of the rich because there's some kind of vicarious interest in it. As you get sometimes with little glossy magazines, which will cover the affairs of wealthy people. And it's almost like like a fashion magazine type thing. It's, it's it, This is more about these people count. These people matter. Ironically, um, the 90s, we saw a lot of talk about the democratization of share ownership. So even the common man or woman's um, had a sense of a, of a real stake in the game. What's actually happened, I think, since, since the turn of the millennium is that whilst that issue has not gone away, although some people might claim it has, I think that the, um, the move towards more private market investing, as well as the sort of level of perceptions that wealth is becoming concentrated, have meant that what high net and ultra high net worth people do with their money is just seen as a, a bigger, a bigger matter, a bigger matter of bigger import. The second, I think, is that because a lot of uh, banks got their knuckles badly grazed, both when the dot com bubble imploded and after uh, the, the the property boom of the of the early noughties by the subprime mortgage meltdown, a lot of banks have taken risk off their balance sheets, or they claim they have and have sought to make their earnings stickier and uh, less volatile. And they have seen the wealth management market as a way to do that. So let me just take one bank, uh, UBS. I'm not picking on UBS particularly. We have very good relationships with that bank. And it's been very successful. 
But what UBS has done, for example, has been to significantly pivot away from investment banking as a major cause of its revenues towards wealth management. And a number of other financial institutions have done the same. They have reduced the, um, the risk-weighted assets that they have on their balance sheets, and they have sought to increase the profile of wealth management. And in, sometimes they've even raised their minimum. So to be a client of their wealth management business, you have to have a lot more in the tank than you did before. And the, and, the, and, the, and the argument behind that is that wealth management clients are, they take, although they may generate more uh, workload for the bank, they also typically um, are important, more lucrative sources of client. And if you can keep them and retain them, that you will have a lot more um, stability on your profit and loss account than you would do if you are more um, focused around trading and so forth. Clearly, the, the, the arrival of legislation, whether it be uh, Dodd-Frank or their, their parallels in other parts of the world, have also encouraged this process. Banks have had to be more conservative around the management of their balance sheets and their capital adequacy ratios. Um, and so that's affected the, 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 the desire to get more of the wealth management business in the, than before. There is one slight complicating factor with this, though. A lot of high net, a very wealthy individuals, particularly at the ultra-high net worth end of the scale, um, they often have um, operating companies. They're not purely managing liquid amounts of wealth. They still have a functioning business. And many of these people have businesses which are internationally exposed. They'll have foreign exchange and other kinds of exposures. So they will need access to the full balance sheet of a bank. So there's a limit to how much a bank that wants to get into the wealth management business can take the investment banking side of it away. They have to make sure, and some of them make a big point about the fact that they offer a complete range of offerings, including access to the balance sheet. So this is a this is a matter of degree rather than a binary choice. But there has been this big secular shift by a number of firms towards wealth management as part of what they do. If you look at their websites, you read their marketing literature, you talk to their C-suite executives, the message is very much consistent, which is that wealth management is much more of a part of their conversation than it would have been 20 years ago. Do you think it's sustainable and given trends in that space as well as technology and others, do you see that changing over the next you know, five or 10 years? I mean, these the, the changes probably will take a little bit of time, if, if any, but do you have a very broad view of, of that industry in, in very different parts of the world? I think there's a limit to how far this can go further. I think there's several reasons for that. There's a simple law of diminishing returns. Um, First of all, there's only so much that you can achieve by strategically positioning your focus of your business. Because if, if everybody else is doing it, that creates one issue. Another is uh, the policy, political, geopolitical facts of the ground are, are definitely moving, or maybe not maybe permanently, but they are shifting, where making us more hostile environment for those holders of very large amounts of wealth. Now, you can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and I'm not going to talk politics about this, but you know, whether it's in the US, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in continental Europe or part, and, and maybe it's even parts of Southeast Asia and North Asia, is that tax rates are likely to rise. Uh, wealthy people who are the holders of these assets are likely to be in, in the target zone. Governments are trying to rebuild their coffers. Uh, again, you know, they may be ignoring the lessons of the supply side school over the last few years, but politicians and are very good at forgetting things and they're not, no different this time around. So it may be that um, the, the, the easy, the, the low-hanging fruit that banks were able to acquire in wealth management over the last 10, 15 years have already been picked. And so the environment in which they operate may become more challenging. Mind you, ironically, um, it may well be that because attacks on the wealthy are likely to increase, if not permanently, um, it means that the wealth, wealthy individuals' need for good advice will also go up. So wealth planning and wealth advisory um, revenues will probably still be an important area for banks and other institutions to capture. But obviously the, 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 board, the, the idea that there's going to be this ever-increasing amount of high net and ultra-high net worth individuals relative to the rest of the population might be... Um, might not be something that is going to go up in a straight linear fashion, that there may well be some times when this is going to be slowed down, if not going to reverse. Um, so that's one one reason why the, the onward march of wealth management might not be um, completely 
completely um, as simple as it's been in the past. Another may be also um, the impact of technology means that certain parts of the wealth management value chain have become very commoditized. Uh, and that means that um, maybe that the banks are going to have to focus much more on where they can really add value and provably do so than they did in the past. So that's, that's going to affect things quite a lot. I think the days when people were willing to pay fat fees to go and see a bank uh, or banker in their office in some marble off uh, posh building in a nice part of town and uh, only get one or two presentations a year, possibly with the odd phone call or even supplemented by a Zoom call, that's going to change, I think. I think people want to get a lot more from their relationships if they want to continue like that. And technology is, is, is in some ways, is stripping some of the, um, some of the layers of, uh, of cost out. So I think there's bound to be some impact from all of that. And we, we've obviously had a taste of it, of course, because of COVID with the way that we're using all these platforms to engage with people over. Well, it's interesting because you, your firm does a lot of work in the fintech space and, and you hold uh, an annual conference there and it's, it hasn't been for one year, it's been for many years. What's kind of, what types of changes have you seen there from the technology space? And is that influencing some of your thought on the future of this, of wealth management in general? Well, one of the, one of the things that wealth management or good wealth technology should be able to, to deliver is, is really good operational efficiencies. This is stuff that the client doesn't often see at least not if they're really looking for it, but it's really important because uh, as I mentioned, with all of these commodity, with all of these sort of quasi-industrialization processes going on in the background, the idea behind it hopefully is that the advisor um, is able to devote a lot more of their time to actually prospecting for clients and dealing with them rather than having to deal with all the chores of the paperwork. So I think one of the big shifts that's occurred over the last 10, 15 years that I've been looking at FinTech specifically is that um, technology um, is not really just about replacing people. Um, it is hopefully about augmenting those peoples um, that are left and working. So we, and we're seeing a lot more focus on that, particularly as you get um, people breaking away from um, large established banks and broker dealers and so forth in the US to take that particular example and moving across to independent advisory businesses, they, they still obviously need to be able to pull on lots of resource and technology enables them to do that. So it's arguable that technology has helped to enable the move towards more advisory-led fee-based advice in the US and in other parts of the world. Um, so that's one big thing that I think technology has, has brought about. Another is it hopefully has helped to ameliorate to some extent the, the burdens of complying with a whole range of rules and regulations that have come out not just since the uh, financial crash of 2008, but even before. Um, you know, the financial services industry faces all kinds of issues to like, like KYC and anti-money laundering requirements. And these um, are extremely difficult to do process manually, and you can still make mistakes, leaving aside just bad actors. So technology is really important in helping firms to, to, to keep on top of that and not allow these um, costs to, um, push them away of dealing with clients. And another big change I, th I think I think is coming, we're still at the early stages of this, we're still in the foothills of it, is how technology can allow um, people to visualize in ways that are often interactive and even entertaining, even fun. Yes, I have used the F word fun in a, in a discussion about wealth management um, to visualize how their wealth journey is going to look and what, what were they, they might need to do in different um, circumstances and there's a big educational component of that people want to learn and I think that uh, issues around financial literacy um, are very is very important I think technology can often help push that in a good direction because people shouldn't be under any illusion just because you've got a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean that you are financially literate um, and I think technology can help with that and finally it also just helps to give good client experience or better client experience people can see you get a full helicopter sort of level view of their wealth and all of their costs and their liabilities as well as their assets. And I think technology has helped people to frame these conversations around that a lot better than perhaps what they could have done 30, 40 years ago where you had like loads of sheaves of paper and you may have gone had to go into some crummy sort of PowerPoint presentation in an office. Let's shift gears and talk about uh, another trend that you and I have discussed is, is certainly around uh, this 
topic and notion of family offices, whether it's single or multi or uh, whatever iteration they come in. Your coverage of this of the financial services industry and, and family offices, how has that changed? And and where do you see that going with, with this term and with, with, with individuals that themselves are family offices? Well, I know that you're a big evangelist about this as well, Ed, is first of all, is that um, there's been a much more awareness of that of the need to have some kind of coherent definitions around what family offices actually are. And allied uh, to that, I think I become a much more aware. And I think that within the financial services sort of cognoscenti, there's a much, there's more awareness of what family offices now are, are or that, that they, their existence is important. People are aware that they collectively control a significant chunk of wealth and that they, they their affairs are worth covering. Uh, where, say, 20 years ago, I think only a handful of journalists probably even knew what they were uh, or cared. Um, now there's much more awareness that these family offices are, 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 thing, are, are entities that people should uh, take note of. There's also, I think, one thing I've noticed, certainly over the last five years, and because it's as recent as that, is I think with single family offices, which we have to distinguish clearly from multi-family offices, single family offices are still relatively discreet. Uh, they were set up very often with the idea of not uh, being able, the people being able to keep their financial affairs out of the public gaze. But within that, there has been a move by, by some single family offices to increase their profile a bit because they know that if they are totally obscure and if people can't easily get hold of them, then they won't necessarily get the best seats at the table when it comes to uh, venture capital and other types of organizations road showing their latest offerings. Uh, if you're a hotshot Silicon Valley venture capital fund and you're trying to get family office money, um, there's not much point you trying to do that if all the fa single family offices are hiding underneath the bed, as it were, and they they don't even have a website or they might just have a couple of address points in a, in a company's registration facility. So I think that there has been a bit more of a sense of family offices having to come out of... Um, come into the limelight a bit more, get more a sense of, be more upfront about who they are. And of course, there are some family offices that are backed by well-known people, which are a bit more visible, like, you know, um, Michael Dell has a family office and they tend to be written about quite a lot. Um, the other day I wrote about the family office founded by Steve Cohen of uh, Point 78 Asset Management, a uh, very well-known Wall Street figure who's also bought the, uh, the New York Mets baseball team, I believe. Good luck with that, Steve. Um, and he bought a big property and is an investor in his stuff, a real estate investment business. And of course, you've got a number of um, other in entrepreneurs and businessmen and women who create family offices. And so their dealings tend to be quite widely written about, you know, the Bill Gates of this world and so on. Um, but I've noticed that there tends to be a little bit more visibility about single family offices, SFOs, than perhaps there was five years ago. Now, with multifamily offices, um, uh, they've always had to be visible because they, they manage, uh, by definition, non-founder money. Um, they, uh, and we, we talked to quite a lot of them, um, to take an example from the UK, to stick to where in my side of the pond is the, the Fleming dynasty, uh, or Stonehenge Fleming, which of course is the Stonehenge marriage with Fleming family and partners about uh, half a decade ago and some people would have heard of the Fleming family because of the the old merchant banking business and some of them may have even heard about it because uh, one of its members created James Bond. Um, but uh, multi-family offices obviously have more visibility and there, there, there can be a definitional issue of course is at what point does a multi-family office just become another big wealth management institution? At what point does its family quality uh, cease to be a distinguishing feature and uh, that's not always a, an easy issue to understand. So family offices, they're more visible, we know more about them, there's a small but growing uh, cluster of institutions that track what they do. We, we do a lot of work with an organization called High Worth Research which tracks uh, family offices particularly in the Europe, Middle East and Africa area and to some extent Asia and is sniffing around certain other parts of the world and there are others. But um, so I would say the visibility and awareness is are the things that have really changed. It's a little bit of a trade-off, though, right? If we go to Archegos and and the situation yes. here on visibility, where have you seen that uh, play in over time in terms of regulation? Because you you lived through the previous yes. uh, family office rule 
uh, debate and then today's debate. Where, where are you seeing that? Well, the family office is clearly um, sticking specifically with the U.S. case, although, as I always like to point out to people, um, that where the U.S. leads, often the rest of the world often follows, although not always. Um, the Archegos um, situation was is an interesting one to me because I've noted over the last 10 years, pretty much ever since Dodd-Frank um, was signed into law by President Obama, uh, a number of hedge fund firms, they're mostly nearly all hedge funds, I think there may be one or two other sort of um, investment ent entities, but nearly, nearly all hedge funds, most famously probably George Soros, the man himself, um, transformed their businesses into a family office for the express purpose, as far as I could tell, to avoid some of the oversight that you would get if you manage third-party money. And I think there's been about a half a dozen, no, there's been about a dozen, maybe more, um, businesses that have taken this route. But they make up a tiny fraction of the total number of single-family offices around the world. I mean, I don't know what the most agreed data point is about how many family offices there are around the world, um, Ed, but um, we're talking several thousand. Um, the numbers, depending on who you believe, vary a bit. And again, there are definitional issues. So the number of um, these family offices, which are really just investment firms that chose that route because they wanted to avoid the, the gaze of the SEC, it's actually, you can count them on the fingers of two hands, pretty much. Um, so they're not a lot. Um, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on the point of view, is that they're very visible. I mean, people like George Soros, Steve Cohen and others, they're not shrinking violets. They get involved in public policy debates. You know, one may buy a sports team and George Soros is, you know, is regarded as a devil incarnate by certain parts of the political world in the United States and others will see him as a very great person. Um, so their actions are going to get, get a lot of attention. And I think what's uh, fast forward to the Archegos uh, issue is, and, the, and the, obviously the, the, the particular way that total return swaps were used to affect the transactions that uh, led to the downfall of that business, is that um, people become aware that you know an entity create that, stru that structures a family office didn't have the level of, of regulation that other, um, say, more conventional hedge fund businesses would have had. Although, um, as has been pointed out by a number of commentators on this issue, um, it's a t it's a use of the of the total return swap and the actions of the individuals concerned, not the fact that it's a family office necessarily, which where the, the where the regulatory issue is lies. And it's also been pointed out to me, for example, by by high worth research founder Alistair Graham, that in the vast majority of cases, family offices provide credit. They don't receive it. Um, so the vast majority of family offices invest in hedge funds, invest in other kinds of um, asset classes. They are not them themselves. So um, punishing the family office sector in general, or at least regulating it more severely because of the actions of Archegos Capital is very much a case of a very blunt instrument, which may not even hit, affect the, uh, the, the actual problem. But undoubtedly, uh, the, because some investment firms do use a family office structure to manage just the, the family money, is it, it means that they get this level of uh, regulatory uh, easement and that um, politicians in Congress and other regulators um, see this as anomalous. So that's where we are at the present time. In terms of areas that you cover, one of the areas that I've always been intrigued in with Family Wealth Report is, is covering personnel moves within the industry and, and changes of the types of individuals that are either in a family office, a multifamily right. office, or what what's changed there? Any patterns uh, that you can depict uh, that have changed over the last 10 years of people that are in the space or where things are going by, by those moves? Um, what kind of people? Well, I think we th there's certain points of continuity for a start. Let's just make the point is that uh, it, we, we, will, we typically tend to focus on senior managers and C-suite moves. But within that, I think, um, well, technology-related hires, is one people you know firms are uh, making a much bigger deal about the fact that they may have a chief technology officer or that they're bringing people into their particular organization with, with certain skills i mean only today i've covered a, a law firm move which actually will hit the tape in uh, the top of the hour about a, uh, a man with a lot of experience in washington 
in the world of the, uh, the Department of Justice, who's also an expert on cyber security, who's got a job at, at a law firm and will be advising the kind of pe people that these law firms advise, including wealth managers. So that's just an example of where something that wouldn't have been a thing, say, 10, 15 years ago is where you know, people with cyber security uh, skill sets are getting jobs in wealth management. Um, so new sub-specializations then? Yeah, we get sub-specializations. So like in environmental, social, governance, themed investment, uh, you're getting people with backgrounds in science and technology because they understand issues around the environment or claim they do. Uh, getting jobs or people with particular expertise around governance, to take another example, getting jobs uh, both in investment management firms where they're looking to build out ESG offerings or indeed wealth managers where they want to keep on top of this stuff. Um, we've seen a few more um, trends quite recently in around issues to do with diversity. Firms making more of a point about hiring people from different ethnic backgrounds and more women and various other groups as well, just to make sure that they're on top of things like that. Um, we're seeing um, other sort of hires where more with a sort of focus on wealth planning rather than just uh, the more traditional asset gathering side of things. Um, certainly over the last few years, particularly once there are people working out what the heck to do because of the, um, the pandemic, we've seen a number of firms developing, uh, trying to push towards how to redevelop and enhance develop business growth in their firms when the pandemic comes to an end. I think that that's going to remain quite a thing. Firms are going to be looking to build up their pipelines and increase their pipelines over the next few years. And I think that quite a lot of the hiring will be with a view to that. Um, so those are the sort of things that we're seeing. Um, well, you mentioned the pandemic. I mean, in, in terms of the pandemic, a lot of different uh, changes, not just in, in terms of work environment, what have you seen uh, for, for wealthy families post that while we're in the middle of the pandemic or post it, that that's going to be changing for those that are either working with wealthy families or, or the wealthy families themselves? Well, one immediate change that came into play, I think, straight off the bat was that uh, people became a lot more aware of their mortality. And so when that happens, you get a lot of people perhaps who've been putting it off looking at their trust in the States and their wills and making sure they've even got one because it blows my mind to this day how many wealthy families don't have a functioning will so that's that certainly was given a significant jolt by by the by the development um, as the vaccines have rolled out and confidence in being able to survive this uh, situation has improved some of the although there may have been a continuation of a focus on the, those areas I think that uh, what's changed is that families um, particularly now that they've all got much more used to using Zoom and various other platforms. Um, are so advisors tell me having many more conversations with one another regularly using these platforms where they will use these platforms to talk about business and finance and save their in-person meetings for having fun and quality family time. Can you, imagine doing, can you imagine doing a, a, a Zoom meeting in January 2020? I mean, it just, it'd be almost, it's almost absurd. Yeah, and obviously it's partly with, with very elderly parents and I've got a, a father who regards a lot of modern technology as, as a spawn of Satan. So obviously there are certain limits to what you can do over these platforms. Um, but I think that uh, I was talking to uh, a wealth management advisory business in uh, Boston and it was going on about how one of the great boons of this is that in the past, if you wanted to get a family gathering to talk about, you know, important financial stuff, it was like trying to herd cats. You had people living all over the US and in other parts of the world. You had to get flight schedules sorted out and you had to get everybody together. And frankly, it was it's a bit of a stilted conversation and often be dominated by one or two people. Whereas with regular Zoom chats done, say, once every fortnight or once a month, you can get people including younger members of a family who are much more tech savvy to sort of like bounce ideas off each other and um, and just get more comfortable with talking about these things in that way. And then when you do have an in-person get together, like over a big party or something, that um, takes the pressure off to have to talk about the, the sort of the formal serious stuff. So for many, I think in many ways, this has been an absolute really, really good thing. Family, I mean, I, my own personal uh, situation I can speak to I'm, my, my family, um, for my wife's family example, they have a regular 
Zoom call on a Sunday afternoon. I've got relations in the US, I've got relations in on the continent and places as far away as Israel, and we could just start bounce ideas off each other and have a laugh. Um, and uh, I, I, I just see that as being something that lots more people are now doing. It doesn't, it's not going to replace and, and must not replace personal get-togethers, but maybe what's happening is that people are using those personal get-togethers to have a, have a good time. You write on a lot of different topics. Uh, we talked about some of them uh, today, including ESG and, and other areas. Where, where do you find most of your readers most interested in, uh, in terms of their topics? And what is what has become one of your favorite topics to cover these days from your perspective? Well, in terms of what readers want, uh, in as much as uh, it's always possible to, 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 to get some sense of a trend and some see some patterns in the numbers, I think one of the things that people always will be interested in is when a large financial institution that everyone knows about makes a big change to its strategy. For example, if it changes how it segments its clients, or if it um, forms a strategic alliance with another firm because it wants to do a, enter a different market and do it in a different way. Because that, you know, if any sign that a firm is trying to make a much bigger dent in the universe and is laying out reasons how it's going to do it and does so convincingly with a lot of resources, will get read. Let me give you a specific example. The Canadian um, and US listed organization CI Financial has been buying stakes in or outright loads of RAAs over the last two years. Those stories get read because people think, my goodness, what are these people up to? What's their, what are they, what are they trying to do? And we get this whenever there's a big significant um, sort of move by one of the larger um, family offices, particularly multi-family offices, or indeed single family offices, if it invests a significant amount of money in something. We did one the other day about Stephen Cohen building out a real estate barn. We've done one a few week, week, days before that about a, a, a family, family office buying a large hotel in South Carolina. Um, I know that we've had conversations about that, about why do family offices like buying hotels and those kind of resources. Those kind of stories get read, I can tell you, because I can see the clicks on the back of the site. Um, another story that gets read will be a very significant move at the top of a firm and where there's often either been some problems or indeed more positively when they're trying to take the game up another level. Um, so those are the sort of stories that get a lot of reaction. When it comes to some of the things I've already mentioned, like ESG, uh, that's become such a sort of um, uh, ubiquitous story that it's not generating the same kind of pizzazz that would have been the case say a few years ago but where people do get interested in that still is where a firm goes into real granular detail about what it's doing and why it's doing it and where there's lots of evidence about whether it's making a difference um, big regulatory and tax law changes will always generate a lot of attention because because clearly because it affects their business so as and when there are you know real hard concrete decisions in Washington about what um, this current administration wants to do about things like capital gains tax or state tax, then clearly that will be read. And um, although the big established news organizations will probably be ahead of me in just doing the basics of covering it, we haven't got journalists in every part of the world, where we will add value and get attention is when we're able to explain to our readers in, in, in detail about where these things matter and what effect they will have. Um, what gives me the most fun to write about? Frankly, I just like writing interviews with very with interesting people um, who are trying to reinvent either wealth management or who have got particular ways of talking about how it can make a difference. Um, I think that um, what I often get most pleasure in is where I've written an article that's gotten people to think about the industry in a different way or to really think afresh about what the value of what they do is and do so in a way that's really Incredible. Um, I just thought, I just frankly just like interviewing interesting people. Uh, I like people who are colourful, who um, don't think in cliches, um, who also are proud of what they do. Um, I I think it's important to remind ourselves that most vast majority of people who work in this industry are working extremely hard. They uh, make a real difference to the lives of the people they work for. And if you support a broadly free enterprise economy, 
and the entrepreneurship that drives it, then it's good to to be, be reminded of the, of the people out there who are helping those entrepreneurs to guard the wealth that they've earned and then so use it in ways that are useful in the future. And so I just get the most pleasure out of interviewing colourful, um, energetic, passionate people about what they do. Sorry, that sounds a bit woo-woo, but I genuinely believe that. No, no, it's great. And it, and it's always good to, to get your perspective uh, as well because it's... Uh... You know, for for our listeners that that read your coverage or or will start after this, it's uh, it's always fun to see what what the author is thinking uh, in in the background. Well, one of the things that you mentioned in terms of readers and and uh, trends in the space is consolidation and, and changes within the RIA yeah. industry, both in the U.S. and abroad. What do you think of that? I mean, it gets a lot of headlines. There's certainly a lot of activity. There, looking at a rankings chart that came out today. What are your thoughts of that? Because you, as you mentioned, you talk to a lot of the key industry players in this space. Yes, I mean, there is undoubtedly um, a lot of interest by people in, in M&A. And uh, for example, there's a lot of interest in why uh, banks and private equity firms are, are opening up their wallets and buying stakes into wealth management businesses, partly because of the reasons I alluded to a bit earlier in our talk is that the secular rise of wealth management as an important business sector and uh, given all the background noise about uh, intergenerational wealth transfer and so forth a lot of firms see, see the wealth management business as a, as a rising tide and a rising tide lifts a lot of boats and they want to be one of those boats so um, the desire to win market share and to get the efficient economies of scale uh, that scale brings is obviously driving a lot of the um, M&A activity that goes on, particularly in the RIA space. I know that someone that you um, have come across, and uh, a fellow member, by the way, of our editorial advisory board, Jamie McLaughlin, um, has spoken about how the same drivers don't appear, at least not yet, to be creating as much M&A consolidation in the multifamily office space. Um, there are a number of reasons he says for that. Um, but clearly, um, so not all parts of the wealth management space are as amenable to being um, built out into ever larger um, organizations than others. Um, but, uh, and, and it still remains, even with all the M&A that we've been writing about, a remarkably fragmented industry. But that doesn't necessarily have to be something that everyone treats like a problem. Um, you know, it's not like automobiles or making steel. Um, Professional services, and this is ultimately a services industry, remember, um, there's only so much of the, the value chain that's scalable and the commoditizable. You, you, you know, you can commoditize and industrialize parts of the middle and the back office function. And there are certain other things that you can do that way. But when it comes to dealing with people and their problems, um, there's always been barriers to that. People don't necessarily like being treated by some enormous machine. Um, and mass customization, of course, is, is, a, is a thing, and there's a lot that can be done with it. But I still think that with wealth management, particularly with the very wealthy end, is that there's a level of discomfort that people have with being served by people who are part of an enormous machine. And that's why I think breakaways will still be a thing and will continue to push against, to some extent, one a sort of unidirectional push towards scale and very large firms dominating everything else. It's hard, isn't it? Right, proximity is so, so important for 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 these type, for any type of professional services relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if you think about the, the term that gets used a lot is that the trusted advisor, which sort of begs the question about who the untrusted ones are. But um, it's a bit like when people say that so and so is a successful entrepreneur, as opposed to what a mediocre one or a, a failure. Um, but with trusted advisors, uh, if, if either, either the analogy or the image in your head of like a butler, to take a British example, so I had to bring them up, or a chief of staff, or personal, someone who is your, sitting on your shoulder, your eyes and ears, someone who you can just unload on about your problems and your concerns, and it won't necessarily cause family there's always going to be a need for that person, male or female, wherever, which all kinds of backgrounds who can be, be that person in your life. Now, um, that's quite hard to do if you have, say, that person is changing every six months because they, they're a new, they've been replaced by somebody else. And inevitably that means that for a lot of high net, particularly ultra high net worth individuals, 
is that the 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 desire to be looked after um in a way means that there's always going to be a fairly fragmented widely spread out market which from a entirely selfish point of view i'm pleased about because it makes makes for an interesting business um it also means, of course, that the sort of people who are doing this job are going to have to have a lot of experience. They can't all come fresh out of college. And so inevitably it means that there's always going to be this process where people will learn um, their industry as in at one level. They'll work for a while in an investment bank, maybe work in a trading floor. They may work in brokerage. They work in insurance. They may work in a completely different part of the, the financial jungle. And at some point, they will move into wealth management and bring all of those skills with them and hopefully also bring not just the hard skills, but also the more the emotional intelligence skills with them as well. Well, I think you, you bring up a good point about the, the advisor uh, that, that's supporting the family. And I, I, I in the way you describe that role, I, I like to call it the chief get stuff done officer, which often uh, gets overlooked with other things that are more flashier in titles or, or, or in function, but I think that's such a critical role for any uh, family as part of what they're looking at. Yeah, it's, 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 it's um, I suppose it's like, the, like an executive officer on a submarine or you, know, you can choose whichever kind of analogy you like from civilian or military life, but you, you need that person. And I think that as a result, that's, that's always going to militate to some extent against the idea that there is this wave of consolidation. That means that we'll wake up one morning and there's only five wealth management institutions in the US. That is simply not going to happen. Um, and uh, I think ironically technology, as to go right back to what I said at the start, because it's enabled so much of the value chain to be done in a way that can be outsourced or and so forth um, it means that independent uh, wealth advisors have, in some ways have never had it a, a better time to be able to set up as advisors because they don't have to be part of some massive vertically in integrated institution anymore um, unless they want to they can outsource a lot of the work they would have had to do and just focus on advising people and finding out new clients so in a way the idea that we're moving towards big vertically integrated consolidated businesses is not the case um and there's there's whole there's a whole sort of subsection of firms that have made a rich living and are making good living in in riding this trend i mean i think for example of um say hightower or a dynasty based down in st petersburg um where they work with lots of independent wealth advisors but they provide them with lots of services and obviously they have a revenue uh, model which means that they get wealthy when these firms do well because they know that people want a level of independence and autonomy, but they can't do it entirely on their own. But they don't want to be part of some big vertically integrated machine. So I think these are forces which mean that we're not that M and A consolidation is bound to have an upper limit. Well, I think this is probably for part two. But one of the areas that people struggle with is how do you make a decision around picking the advisor around that, given that there's so much, so many different things that need to be done. So many people saying that they do the same thing. Um, that uh, all of the things that you're mentioning, I think, are, are critical in that decision process is, is one of them. One of the areas uh, I wanted to ask you about is Family Wealth Report itself. Where, where do you, if you had to describe it today in, in clear view, how would you describe it? And where do you and the team see, see Family Wealth Report going in the next five years? I, I see it, first of all, as a, a news and information service for people who work in the trenches of wealth management in the US and other parts of North America who need to have actionable ideas and intelligence about how to make their businesses more successful and also need to be kept up to date with the latest and most relevant news that comes across um, the field. So, um, And so that means that we are ruthlessly relevant in terms of not only do we cover the news that we think is really important to our readers, but we also try and filter out a lot of the nonsense that they don't need to worry about. And also they don't, we don't have to read about stuff that they can get elsewhere from other, frankly, in some ways, better news services are better, at least better doing what they do. So um, we know that one of the biggest problems for our readers is noise. And we try and reduce that as much as possible so that the, they get a, a tight, very carefully curated, set of stories that are completely relevant to what they do and anything else is kept out of their way so that they don't waste their time with one thing that no one's been able to invent is time um, and our readers don't have any uh, beyond a certain amount so we uh, 
we focus very much on making sure that they get the news and information they need. We also think of ourselves as a forum over which people can have a good, at times, no holds barred conversation about what is going on in the industry and what needs to go on in the industry. So we have quite a lot of byline content from people who can have a good uh, bang the table about things that they think need to be got out there. And we do features and interviews with people on topics um, that are bubbling up. The Family and Wealth Report is in many ways a place where people in a, in a constructive environment can talk about these issues, knowing that they're edited by journalists who care about this industry and are not just looking to sort of chase after the proverbial ambulance on one story one day to the next. In terms of where, I, so in terms of where I think the Family Wealth Report is going to go, well, um, my hope is that it goes on becoming even more successful and more widely read and that, that we continue to be pushing in important parts of the news agenda in this particular field. Um, so what I want it to continue to do is to be more influential um, to frankly help to set the agenda um, even more and that we have a, a more more engagement with more parts of the of the wealth management industry in in, in this particular region um, I also want um, I think it's important that we continue to be and become even more of a, of, a, of, a, of the voice of the wealth management industry in its its region and then the same applies to its sister new services in Europe and Asia um, I think the in some ways, the wealth management industry doesn't really have a common voice or a single voice, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are lots of trade associations and groups that speak for or speak to the industry, and we all know who they are. Um, um, and we work, for example, with uh, the, the Ultra High Net Worth Institute in, 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 in the US. But I think that what we still need to, to do even more is to make the case for why wealth management is an important and necessary industry around the world um, and if as long as we have broadly open economies and we have entrepreneurs building new businesses and solving problems they will need to have uh, wealth management that looks after what they do so that they can continue to do what they do and that means that the industry whilst it can't be um, blind to criticisms and problems and they obviously always will be there we also need to make sure that the that people feel that they that there's an organisation that's driving ideas about best practice and applauding those who do that. And I think Family Wealth Report is very much part of what that's all about. So last question for you, Tom. Looking back to when you started in this field, to what you to today, what's the one lesson learned that you wish you could have taken back to yourself when you got started? Boy, what would I have told myself twenty years ago? <laughs> Um, probably, um, even more, I would have, I would have said I need to be better at organizing myself. Um, I've had to learn quite a lot on the job about how to become an efficient editor in, in managing my time. Um, and it's taken me quite a long time to get, get, get in the groove. Um, another, I think another lesson or there's another thing I would have done different, well, not done differently, but I've done more of. 20 years ago, because I see so many benefits from this, is probably to work even more in foreign languages. I know that we're an English language publication and uh, so many of our readers are, but it doesn't half make a difference if you have got a second or third language in your back pocket. Um, but uh, but I think just being trying to be better at managing my time and better at prioritizing things, I think is something I probably should have uh, or would have, would have liked to have got much better earlier. Than I had done. Um, my first my first experience of being an editor at uh, the business in two thousand and seven was quite a tumultuous year for me personally because I found it quite a struggle, and I had to learn a lot very fast. Um, and so, had I known what I now know, I think it probably would have um, it would have been a, an easier experience. But sometimes hard experiences are necessary. You, you you don't always learn things with a big smile on your face. Sometimes you have to learn it feeling. Oh my God, this is this is this is tough. Well, hopefully, this has not been one of those tough experiences because I've no, I've, absolutely I've, not. I've appreciated uh, your your insights and your candor on this. And if folks want to get in touch with you, Tom, what's the best way they should do that? The best way to get into contact with me is to email me. Um, and so, the email address that you should have for me, feel free to share this in uh, this broadcast. Um, also, you can uh, uh, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. 
Um, I like to communicate with people that way. Um, and uh, so that you, you can do that. Uh, we obviously put out a lot of, we quite a lot of our content on social media where we take the paywall down. So we allow people to have a look at what we do and to get, um, get familiar with our content. Um, we use Twitter and a number of other outlets. Um, so that's, that's it really. Um, also, you can, you can also go to the websites, Family Wealth Report, Wealth Briefing, and Wealth Briefing Asia, and you can contact us via that as well. Well, thanks, Tom, and thanks to all of you for listening in today. Uh, if you enjoyed today's conversation or are so inclined, do subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. Sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space. Check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone.